are listening to the Calvary Church Podcast, where each episode features a life-transforming message that was previously recorded in one of our services. And now, let's join a service that's already in progress. You don't know, I'll help you know, the holiday season is here, and uh, you do have permission now to listen to Christmas music, if you would like. Uh, we... We, I don't know how many of you have a specific date, but we have a date on the calendar that no Christmas music is allowed to be played until this date. And uh, for us, it's November 2nd. For others, it's um, other days. But uh, we're in full holiday mode, and, and it can be certainly a wonderful time of year, and some say the most wonderful time of year, gatherings with friends and gatherings with family, great food, all of those things. But the holidays are a great magnifier, and uh, they magnify when the holidays magnify our relational issues. They magnify our financial struggles. They magnify our losses and our tragedies. And it can be a season of great anxiety. The holidays can be a season of great anxiety. And throughout the month of November, we will be doing a series called Anxious for Nothing, based on a book from Max Lucado. Anxiety is a, 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 met, a meteor shower, I should say, of what-ifs. What if I don't close the sale? What if I don't get the, the, the bonus? And because of that, what if I can't afford braces for the kids? And what if my kids have crooked teeth? And what if the crooked teeth keep them from having friends, a career, and a spouse? And what if they end up homeless and hungry, holding a cardboard sign that reads, My parents couldn't afford braces for me. Anxiety is, is trepidation. It's a suspicion, an apprehension. It's life in a minor key with major concerns. Perpetually on a pirate's ship's plank. You're part Chicken Little and part Eeyore. Anxiety and fear... They're cousins, but not twins. Fear sees threats. Anxiety imagines threats. Fear screams, get out. Anxiety ponders, what if? Fear results in fight or flight. Anxiety creates doom and gloom. Fear is the pulse that pounds when you see a coiled rattlesnake in your front lawn. Anxiety is the voice that tells you, never ever, for the rest of your life, walk barefooted through the grass. There might be a snake somewhere. In a way, the word anxious defines itself. I like how Max Lucado describes this. He said, it's a, a hybrid of angst and It's that angst is the sense of unease, shh, is the sound 
I make on the tenth step of a flight of stairs when my heart beats fast and I run low on oxygen. I can be heard inhaling and exhaling, sounding like the second syllable of anxious, which describes anxious people. These are people who are out of breath because of the angst of life. There is a Hawaiian legend concerning the name Hawaiians give to non-Hawaiians. Who knew? But they call us something if you're not from Hawaii. Ha'ol is the Hawaiian word. They call us non-Hawaiians, and it means no breath. This name became associated with European immigrants in the 1920s. While there are different explanations for this, one explanation was that the Hawaiians thought that the settlers were always in a hurry to build plantations, harbors, and ranches. And so to the native Hawaiians, they seemed short of breath. Anxiety takes our breath away for sure, if only that's all it took away. However, we know anxiety also takes our sleep, takes our energy, it takes our well-being. Writer of Psalms 37.8 says, Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret, it only causes harm. Harm to our necks, our backs, our jaws, our body. Anxiety twists us in emotional pretzels, and it causes our eyes to twitch, our blood pressure to rise, and our heads to ache. To see the consequences of anxiety, just read about half the ailments in a medical textbook. Anxiety is not fun. And chances are you or someone you know seriously struggles with anxiety. According to the National Institute of Mental Health, anxiety disorders are reaching epidemic proportions. In a given year, nearly 50 million Americans will feel the effects of a panic attack, some kind of phobia, or other anxiety disorders. Our chest will tighten, we'll feel dizzy or lightheaded, we'll fear crowds and avoid people. Anxiety disorders in the United States are the number one mental health problem among women and are second only to alcohol and drug use among men. The United States is now the most anxious nation in the world. Congratulations to us. It's the the land of stars and stripes that has become the country of stress and strife. This is a costly achievement. Stress-related ailments cost the nation over $300 billion every year in medical bills and lost productivity, while our usage of sedative drugs keeps skyrocketing. Just between 1997 and 2004, American, uh, Americans more than doubled their spending on anti-anxiety medications like Xanax and Valium from $900 million to $2.1 billion. The Journal of American Medical Association cited a study that indicates an exponential increase in depression. People of each generation in the 20th century were three times more likely to experience depression than people of the preceding generation. Question is, how can this be? 
our cars are safer than ever. We regulate food and water and electricity. And though we have crime and maybe gangs on streets, most Americans do not live under the danger of imminent attack. Yet, if worry were an Olympic sport, we'd win the gold medal. Citizens in other countries ironically enjoy more tranquility. They experience, research says, one-fifth the anxiety level of Americans, despite having fewer of the basic life necessities. What's more, when, they're, when these less anxious developing country, uh, these developing world citizens immigrate to the United States, they tend to get just as anxious as Americans. Something about our particular way of life then is making us less calm and composed. Our college kids are feeling it as well. In a study that involved more than 200,000 incoming freshmen, students reported all-time lows in overall mental health and emotional stability. As psychologist Robert Leahy points out, the average child today exhibits the same level of anxiety as the average psychiatric patient in the 1950s. Kids have more toys, clothes, technology, and opportunity than ever, but by the time they leave home, they are emotionally wrapped tighter than an Egyptian mummy. We are tense. Why? What is causing the anxiety. One cause could be change. Researchers speculate that the Western world's environment and social order have changed more in the last 30 years or so than have in the previous 300 years. Think about what has changed in the last 30 or 40 years. Technology, our experience in life, the existence of the Internet, thank you, Al Gore. The speed and frequency of news. The increased warnings about global warming and nuclear threats, terrorist attacks. All of this happening in previous generations, it would take a day or two for the news to reach about what was going on in the world. And maybe our parents or our grandparents got used to the nightly news. And nightly they would start hearing. Now it's real time. We're seeing this all real time and we're seeing all of it all the time. Social media, smartphones, screens all day, every day have caused our world to change. And you wonder if that has any implication in our anxiety. Another cause some suggest would be the speed at which we live, we move. Our ancestors traveled as far as a horse and camel would take them during daylight. We jet through time zones as if they were neighborhood streets. Our great-grandparents would turn down the brain when the sun went down. We're just getting started, thanks to cable, the internet, Netflix, social media, and you wonder if the speed at which we live plays a role. 
And there's obviously personal challenges, although I think every generation has faced those challenges, but this generation faces real challenges of financial crisis, foreclosure, the ills of, uh, of cancer and other diseases that plague us, the high rate of divorce, the high rate of addiction, uh, those kind of things plague our society. And one would think that Christians would be exempt from worry. But unfortunately, we know we're not. We've been taught that the Christian life is a life of peace. And we don't have peace, and therefore we assume that we're the problem. And not only now do we feel anxious about a particular problem, but we feel guilty about our anxiety, and it results in this downward, down, downward spiral of worry, guilty, worry, guilty, worry, guilty. And we wonder if the, the Apostle Paul was out of touch with reality when he wrote, be anxious for nothing. Be anxious for nothing. He could have said, and we would have understood it better, be anxious for less. That would have been a sufficient challenge. Be anxious for less in your life. Be, be anxious only on Thursdays. Thursday's the day to worry about things. Or be anxious only in seasons of severe affliction. And then be anxious. But Paul doesn't seem to offer any leeway here. He said, be anxious for nothing. Not a zilch, nothing. And the question is, is, is that exactly what he meant? And I think it could be argued that Maybe we have to take a little bit deeper of a look. He wrote the phrase, be anxious for nothing, in the present active tense, which implies an ongoing state. He was addressing this idea of life being lived in perpetual anxiety. Max Lucado retranslates the scripture to read, don't let anything in life leave you perpetually breathless or in angst. He says the presence, and Max Lucado says this, the presence of anxiety is unavoidable, but the prison of anxiety is optional. The presence of anxiety is unavoidable, but the prison of anxiety is optional. See, anxiety is not a sin. It's an emotion. So we should not be anxious about our anxiety. Anxiety, though, can lead to sinful behavior. And we can fall into sin when we numb our anxiety with a, a six-pack or cause ourselves to lose our mind, to go on binges and lose the sense of moderation in our life, when we spew anger and we peddle our fears to anyone who will buy them, that's when anxiety crosses the line. And if toxic anxiety crosses the line too much, it causes us to make some poor decisions like abandoning our family, our spouse, neglecting our kids, breaking covenants that we've had, breaking hearts, 
And those kind of things, when those become our norm of responding to the anxiety in our life, I think we need to take heed and be alert. Jesus said this in Luke chapter 21, take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the cares of this life that and that day come on you unexpectedly. There's a powerful and popular passage of scripture that we are going to look at over these next couple weeks. It's literally the most popular passage in that Kindle has highlighted. When people highlight on Kindle, if you didn't know, they, they're watching that. They're monitoring that. And the Bible is the most downloaded book on Kindle. And this is the most highlighted scripture or passages on the Kindle. It's found in Philippians 4. And we're going to read 4 through 9. And I want you to read it with me on the screen. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, Whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. Six verses with four admonitions that point to one wonderful promise. And that promise is, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And I want to look at these four admonitions tonight. And we're going to look at specifically tonight one of these, but I want to introduce you to the four. In verse 4, it says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. We used to sing a song like that, right? Okay, I I wasn't making that up. I remember that song as a child. I'm not going to sing it for you, but uh, it's there. It exists. Maybe Brother Danny will break it out someday. Just... uh... So the first thing, first admonition is we celebrate God's goodness. We celebrate... God's goodness. In verse number six, it says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. So the next thing we do is we ask God for help. We ask God for help. The the third admonition comes from verse six also. It says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. So we leave our concerns with God. We ask for God's help, and we leave our concerns with God. And then finally, verse number 8, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, noble, just, pure, lovely, good report, any virtue, any praiseworthy things, meditate on these things. So we meditate on good 
things. And through this process outlined by the Apostle Paul, we can add calm to our lives. We can add calm to our lives. So I think it's important, though, as we we dive into this first one tonight, it's important that we remember that peace requires work on our part. This is something that we've talked a little bit about in previous Bible series that we've done over this year, but it requires work. God doesn't just dump peace on us like a bucket of water, and we were not ready for it. He gave us principles in his word that lead us to experience peace. And some of the work may be required, and I'm not in any way tonight going to uh, argue against good therapy, or there are times when medications may be in order. But we realize that at the end of it all, or should I say at the beginning of it all, God should be at the beginning of the decision. Whatever we reach for from help, whether it's from a therapist or a psychologist, psychiatrist, or a pastoral counsel, whatever it is, God needs to be first in line in the discussion. And sometimes finding peace takes work. It's not God's will that we lead a life of perpetual anxiety. It's not his will that we face every day with dread and trepidation. He made you to be more than a living a life of angst and breast-stealing worry. I know and I believe that he has great things for us. So we first look at the letter C, celebrate God's goodness. Now, growing up, uh, if you don't know, my uh, parents started a church in Canton, Ohio when I was three. And... Um, I would have to say that my family was not the outdoors type, not really outdoorsy people. In fact, my, my dad, if you talk to him, he, he pretty much hates camping, hates fishing, hates hunting, all of those things. I remember growing up as a kid, he, he would tell us a story of when he was a child, they, his dad took him out or his stepdad took him out uh, out hunting, and uh, he shot a rabbit, and he was so devastated that he had shot the rabbit because it wasn't dead yet, and he wanted to take it to the vet after he had shot the rabbit. So that's, that's kind of the environment I grew up in. Some of you grew up in homes with guns and all those kind of things. Uh, that was not my environment. But I have two very vivid memories when I, don't, I really don't know what came upon my father. Um, but he thought that he would take us out camping. Uh, apparently, he had no clue about camping, but decided that he would try it with us. And so what I remember is we had a little uh, white... Ford Tempo. Does anybody remember the white Ford Tempo? And somehow he had rigged a, a trailer and hitch on that, and he had ended up, he got a boat. A small, I don't even know how he got the boat. So he had a small boat, and uh, we took it out 
to Burr Oak, I believe, uh, to, to camp. And so we had a 10, and we were all excited. I, I Now, looking back on it, I know my parents, specifically my dad, was not a happy camper, needless to say. But, but he tried. And the first year, we set up camp, and wouldn't you know it, a storm blows in, right? It always does. And just everything came crashing down. We just pick up, we throw everything in the boat, it's soggy, wet, and we just take off, and that was it. That was it. That was the camping trip. It, it maybe lasted a day. I don't, I don't really remember. And, and, and then he tried it a second time, and the exact same thing happened. And I, I, I'm sure that he took it as a sign from God, like, okay, I won't do this anymore. But the, the point was, the second time around, the tent was even more mangled, it was more useless, it, it, it was just completely destroyed, and again, just threw everything in the boat, we took off, and, and that was the end of that. But the, the storms of life, and I've preached on it the last couple weeks, we realize that storms come in our life, and, and in our life, you could say most storms consist of of the big D's of life, the, the difficulties of life. There's divorce, there's disease, and there's death. And so all of these things cause uh, us to, to have to, to face this level of anxiety, this level of kind of what are we going to do with our life. And if anyone had reason to be anxious, the Apostle Paul did. Paul was in his 60s. He had been in the church for over 30 years. He had a passport filled with travel destinations from places he had ministered. As we talk Sunday, he, his body bore the marks of shipwreck, beating, and stoning. His eyes were dimming. His body was failing. He had experienced torture. He had experienced starvation. He had experienced rejection. And to top it off, not only was he feeling the effects of the physical end of his ministry, he had to endure, as he wrote, heartache from the people who he had invested in, people he had invested hours and days and helping them to find Christ. Now we're starting, some were starting to walk away from the truth that he had taught them. False prophets seemed to be sprouting up like weeds in the cracks of a parking lot all over the place that he was ministering and had ministered. And in the churches that he had started, people were having issues. And now he awaits the trial of the Roman emperor, and Nero has put pressure on the, the Romans to, to go after these disciples of Christ, so to speak. And so Paul is now in this state. He's in his 60s. He's physically worn down. He's not in a vacation home. He's not in some retirement place, kicked back. He's not in a nursing home or even a retirement home. He's in a filthy, rat-infested jail cell. So much for the calm 
retirement years. So much for kicking back and enjoying the fruit of your labor. But this is the setting in which the book of Philippians is penned. And when you read his words, you would have thought he was at a beachside hotel in the Bahamas. His letter to the Philippians does not mention one word of fear or complaint. Not one. He never shakes a fist at God. Instead, he lifts his thanks to God and calls on his readers to do the same. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. Paul's prescription for anxiety begins with a call to rejoice. Paul used every tool in the toolbox on this verse, hoping to get our attention. First, he implores a present imperative tense so his readers would hear him say, continually, habitually rejoice. Keep doing it over and over again. And if the verb tense wasn't enough, enough, he, he removed the expiration date of rejoice and he said, rejoice in the Lord always. And if that weren't enough and the always weren't enough, he repeated the command again. I say, rejoice. How can a person obey this command? How, how, is it, how is it possible? Is it possible for any person to maintain an uninterrupted spirit of gladness? Gladness. In and of itself, no. And this is not what Paul tells us to do. He doesn't just tell us to rejoice. He says, rejoice in the Lord. This verse is a call not to a feeling, but to a decision and a deeply rooted confidence that God exists, that he is in control, and that he is good. Rejoice in the Lord. You got to see him as Lord. And in spite of the wind and the rain and the storm that would be blowing in his life, his structure, his dwelling, his frame of mind was not fallen. It wasn't destroyed or crumbled to the ground because his belief system, his belief system steadied and readied him for any storm that would come. And I like what Max Lucado says. He, be, he says, belief always precedes behavior. Belief always precedes behavior. Before Paul and his epistles addressed behavior, he addressed belief. Before he addressed convictions, he, or before he addressed actions, he addressed convictions. And one of the strengths of Paul's belief system that held him up in the storm was his belief in the sovereignty of God. Sovereignty is that term in the Bible that describes God's perfect control and management of the universe. He, he preserves and God governs every element. And so in the treatment of anxiety, a proper understanding of sovereignty is important. Anxiety is often the consequence of perceived chaos. And I found this interesting, that psychologists verified the 
this fact than when they studied the impact of combat on the soldiers in World War II. They determined that after 60 days of continuous combat, the group, the ground troops became emotionally dead. Those on the ground became emotionally dead after 60 days of constant battle. But this reaction is somewhat understandable because these soldiers were on the ground. They endured constant threat of bomb blitzes, machine guns, enemy snipers, and this anxiety on the ground in these ground troops was of no surprise. But what was a surprise was the comparative calm of fighter pilots. Their mortality rate was among the highest in combat. 50% of fighter pilots in World War II lost their life. Yet an astounding 93% of them claimed to be happy in their assignments, even though the odds of survival were the same as the toss of a coin. What made the difference? Those pilots had their hands on the controls. They had the control of the plane. They felt that their fate was in their hands. The infantry, by contrast, could just as easily be killed standing still or running away. They were helpless. They were at the mercy of everything else that was going on around them. And here's the formula that I I think is important for us to understand. That perceived control creates calm. Lack of control gives birth to fear. But you don't need a, a war illustration to prove this formula. Think about road congestion. Supposedly, a team of researchers, German researchers, found that traffic jam increases your chance of a heart attack threefold. I'm not sure how that works. But gridlock is the ultimate loss of control. We may know how to drive, but that fellow in the next lane clearly does not. We can be the best drivers in history, but the texting teenager beside us might be the end of us. There's no predictability. It's just stress. Think about what people are more afraid of. Are they more afraid of flying or driving? But which is more likely to crash? But our fears are built on what we can't control. And anxiety increases as perceived control decreases. So what do we do? Do we try to control everything? Never board a plane without a parachute. Never enter a restaurant without bringing your own clean silverware. Never leave the house without a gas mask. Never give away your heart for fear of a broken one. Never step on a crack lest you break your mother's back, so they say. But we face anxiety by taking control, if only we could. Yet, certainly, certainty, I should say, is a cruel imposter. A person can accumulate 
millions of dollars and still lose it in a recession. A health fanatic can eat just the right food and vegetables and still battle cancer. Person, a hermit, so to speak, can avoid all human contact and still struggle with insomnia. We want certainty, but the only certainty is the lack thereof. And that's why the most stressed out people are control freaks. Breathe. Because they fail at the quest they most pursue. The more they try to control the world, the more they realize they cannot. Some people are getting elbows stepped on. But life becomes this cycle of anxiety and failure and anxiety and failure and anxiety and failure. And we cannot take control because control is not ours to take. The Bible has a better idea. Rather than seeking total control, we first relinquish it. We don't try to just run the world, but we entrust the one who made the world. And this is the message behind Paul's admonition, to rejoice in the Lord. Peace is, a, is within reach. Not for lack of problems, but because of the presence of a sovereign Lord. That's why peace is a possibility in our life. Rather than rehearse the chaos of the world, Paul says rejoice in the Lord always. Think about what Paul said through Philippians 1 verse 12. He says, but I, I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. It's a positive outlook for a guy who's chained up at the end of his life. Philippians 1.15, he says, Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not, not sincerely supposing to add afflictions to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice." What a perspective. People are trying to get at him. People are trying to turn against him. And he keeps Christ. He keeps putting Christ at the center of it all. And these conditions Paul found himself in may have been miserable in that they were he was in a prison. But high above it all was this idea he writes in Philippians 2.13. God who works in you both to will and and to do for his good pleasure. He's acknowledging the sovereignty of God. To read Paul is to read the words of a man who in the innermost part of his being believed in the steady hand of a good God. And he was protected by God's strength. He was preserved by God's love. And he lived beneath the shadow of the Almighty.
He lived beneath the shadow of the Almighty. He stabilized his life by saying, God, you are sovereign. You are sovereign. So he wrote, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. I close with this story tonight. Horatio Spatford wrote the lyrics to one of the world's best-loved hymns. Spatford was a prosperous lawyer and Presbyterian church elder. And in 1871, he and his wife, Anna, suffered tragic losses in the Chicago fire. In November of 1873, Anna and their children set sail for Europe with a group of friends. Horatio stayed home to take care of some of the businesses that he was working with. And on December 2nd, he received a telegram from his wife that began with six words. You've probably heard this. Saved alone, what shall I do? So he soon learned that the ship that they had been on had collided with a British vessel and had sunk. And their four daughters drowned. And Anna survived. So he left for England, and he brought Anna back home. And en route, while sailing on a ship, he wrote the lyrics to a song that would become an anthem to the providence of God. He eventually moved to Jerusalem to form a Christian society designed to minister to the needs of all people. And in time, the group expanded and moved into a larger house outside the city walls, and the the house became a hostel and then a hotel, and it still stands today, and it still serves as the display location for the words written by a grief-stricken man on a storm-tossed sea. He wrote, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet through trials, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. It is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. His final verse, he penned, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Sometimes the circumstances in life, it's hard to find anything positive in it. We consider what we've been through as a church. It was really just that we trusted the sovereignty of God. That was our only prayer. That was our only hope. Because you can't find sufficient answers. You can't find sufficient things to say that would just cause anxiety to roll away. But all we can do is rejoice in the Lord always, 
Rejoice in the Lord. We rejoice in his sovereignty. We rejoice in his mercy. And when I cannot find maybe the the ability to thank God for just the circumstance of life, I can thank God for the provision of his grace and his mercy and his love that I know endures forever. It is well. It is well with my soul. That should be the anthem of our song in these holidays that get complicated. They get complicated and they magnify our our relationships that maybe are a little strained and stressed. It, It magnifies our financial woes. It magnifies our losses. It magnifies the tragedies that we've been through. It's in these times, no no greater times to sing, it is well with my soul. And I'm reminded today to just to just say and to, to acknowledge what Paul said, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. It's going to be out of that, out of that first acknowledgement of his sovereignty, of his work in our life, his handiwork in our life, that we can find peace that passes understanding. Peace that literally goes around. I heard a description of it like a semi-truck passing another car. Peace that passes understanding. That what you see ahead is trouble. What you see is difficulty and peace comes around. That all you see is peace of God. It's not that you're not still traveling on that road. It's not that you're not still going to face those circumstances, but at some point you're just able to acknowledge, God, you are sovereign. You are Lord. And I'm going to trust you with this circumstance. Would you stand with me tonight? Lord, I thank you for your kindness. I thank you for your mercy that endures forever. God, I thank you for your word that while it's challenging to us in a society and in a culture that is full of anxiety and full of worry, everything and everywhere we look is to cause us to be worried about something or afraid of something. God, your word was not written in a way that was only for that first century church, but Paul wrote it in the middle of a cell, maybe even with a rat sitting next to him, that we are to rejoice in the Lord always. We are to celebrate your goodness. We're to celebrate your work in our life. God, I'm praying that today we would be able to make application to your word tonight. I pray for those who maybe are anxious about some things in their life, God, we know we'll have trouble in this life, but Lord, we're not to live in perpetual anxiety. God, and I'm praying you would deliver us from spirits of fear, spirits of worry and anxiety, and give us the courage to do the hard work, God, to do the hard work of putting you first, to calling on you, asking for your help, leaving it in your hands, Lord, and meditating on your good things. You've given us a plan. You've given us a a, a way, God, to find peace in our life. And I pray that you would give us the courage, give us the courage to live it out. Because we know that when we find peace, Lord, 
It's what is going to make a difference in the lives of those who we come in contact with every day. They're looking for peace. They're looking for, God, that feeling, that sense that everything's going to be all right. God, and without you, we don't have that certainty. God, I'm praying that you would use us, use us as a great congregation to accomplish your work. In this month of November, I pray, God, as we have opportunity to care for others and serve others, God, I pray we would do it with a rejoicing heart. Thank you for your provision. Thank you for your love and your gifts towards us. We give you praise and we give you glory. In Jesus' name, everyone said amen. This podcast was brought to you by the Calvary Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. For more information about the Calvary Church, please visit our website at www.thecalvarychurch.com. Consider joining us for a service where you will find friendly people, high-energy music, and life-transforming preaching and teaching from a biblical worldview. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or on our website at www.thecalvarychurch.com. Until next time, thanks for listening.